Welcome. This is the second session of Covenantal Commandment. Third, se third session. I stand, I stand corrected. It is the third session of Covenantal Commandment, the sabbatical year in the Bible. The Torah sees the commandment of, Shemit of the Shemitah as a central observance with far-reaching social, social, ethical, and religious implications, and we will pay close attention to the biblical text to understand how this observance is framed in the Bible, its contemporary relevance. We are going to learn about this today with Rabbi Silber, who is here. Um, and there, he, we're going to have some sources to share on the screen. If you have your own preferred Tanakh, you are certainly welcome to follow along. Otherwise, keep an eye on the screen and check up, and you'll see a very some very familiar Safari layouts. Um, Rabbi Silber, good evening. Would you like to start us off? Thank you very much. Okay, so we're looking at the significance of Shemitah as it found in the Chumash, and uh, we took note of the fact that Torah spends a, quite a fair amount of time in the book of Ayikra in chapter 25 on Shemitah. And besides the amount of space that the Torah gives Shemitah, what makes it centrally significant is the fact that after chapter 25, we'll, we'll deal with some of the issues in chapter 25, but it begins with the sabbatical year, the seventh year. And then chapter 26 in the book of Ayikra, uh, the next to last chapter in the book, contains the blessing and the curse. The blessing, if you keep the commandments in the Chukotai Teleko, which is in chapter, the beginning of chapter 26, verse number three, there's a description of what will happen if you observe my commandments. Um, and there's a list of, of, of blessings, several verses in the beginning of 26. And then there's a much longer uh, set of passages about what will happen if you fail to observe the commandments. And the bottom line is, if you fail to observe the commandments, the Torah says in chapter 26, the land will spit you out. Very, very significant statement. We discovered in no uncertain terms that we too can be banished from the land. The same way those who formerly inhabited the land, Canaanites, have been uh, exited from the land. And we too can be exited from the land if we fail to observe the commandments. The particular term that's used in chapter 26, um, it describes, it says, if you fail to observe the commandments and you would know, violate my covenant, that is a, right towards the beginning of the description of what happens if one fails to observe the commandments. Chapter 26, verse number 15. If you if you reject my chukim, the positive side began in If you walk in my in my statutes, and then the negative is in If you reject my laws, my rules, and, and in doing so, it says. You uh, don't perform my commandments. You break my covenant. We can underline that phrase, you break my covenant. So the, there's a covenant. There's a, that means there's a relationship between God and Israel. And Brit typically is a two-sided commitment. Each side makes a commitment. And if one side breaks it, the covenant has not been uh, fulfilled. And then there is a list of quite dire responses that what will happen if we fail to observe the covenant or we break the covenant. It's actually very interesting. And we're not going to go through all the details of chapter 26. But what's interesting is that the phrase that repeats in chapter 26 uh, is that, for example, in verse number 18, after it describes some punishments, uh, if you still refuse to obey me, 
Sheva Alchato Techem, I will punish you sevenfold, seven times for your sin. So the word seven, the idea of God punishing up, punish, punishing us sevenfold appears in chapter 26. And not a, not a coincidence because later in chapter 26, as we have noted uh, in the earlier sessions, the Torah speaks generally about not observing mitzvot, chukim, mishpatim, knowing a covenant, but doesn't get into the specifics. It doesn't single out a particular set of rules that one fails to observe, except, and this is the exception, the one law that the Torah speaks of, the failure to observe this law results in banishment from the land, is in fact, the failure to observe Shemitah. Failure to observe Shemitah. Um, for example, in verse number 34, chapter uh, 26, verse 34, it talks about after we've been banished from the land and the land is empty, desolate. So it says then, the land will make up for its Sabbath years throughout the time that is desolate. You are in the land of your enemies. The land will rest and make up for its Sabbath years. Throughout the time that it is desolate, it shall observe the rest that it did not observe in your Sabbath years while you were dwelling upon it. This is a rather striking statement. Of all the mitzvot, one could have singled out, the Torah could have singled out. It specifically mentions Shemitah to the extent that the exile is there because in exile, the land will lie desolate the land will not be worked because you're not there. And the land lying desolate, not being worked, is akin to what happens during the Shemitah year, where we are forbidden to work the land. And the land will make up for its failure to observe Shemitah. It's very striking that actually it puts it in terms of the land. The land we prevented the land from observing its sabbatical year. And therefore, we're banished for not allowing the land to observe its commandment, like a person who's, who's not observing. We failed, now the land has to make it up. So, uh, and it repeats this later on as well. It says later on, towards the end of chapter 26, um, Let me find that verse. Verse number 43. The land will be forsaken of them, making up for its Sabbath years by being desolate of them. And they will be atoned for their iniquity. And the other point I wanted to emphasize is that while it's true that Shemitah is singled out, which means Shemitah is singled out in a sense, that's not the only mitzvah, there are many mitzvot. And in fact, the Torah talks in chapter 26 generally, mitzvot chukim mishpatim. So what Shemitah is apparently is representative. In other words, not going to single out, mention every single mitzvah. But you pick one mitzvah, which in this chapter represents all the mitzvot, and that mitzvah happens to be Shemitah. And the failure to observe Shemitah results in banishment from the land. And the observance will be nilly of Shemitah, because it will observe Shemitah in a sense when nobody's there. That's part and parcel of returning to the land together with, and the Torah makes this clear, confession, 
You have to make up the years. You have to confess. And then the Torah added in chapter 26, you return to the land because God remembers the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's chapter 26, verse number 42. et briti Yaakov. V'yafet briti Yitzchak. V'yafet briti Abraham Eskar. V'yaretz Eskar. Says God, I remember the covenant I made with Yaakov, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. Now remember the land means presumably the covenant about the land. And I remember that the land has sinned in a sense, but the land, I have a relationship with the land, says God. And this land, you didn't permit the land, you, you violated or you prevented the land from fulfilling its obligation. That was presented. And in the next verse, but once the land does best, because you're not there, then I have not totally forsaken you. And the chapter ends, verse number 44, despite the fact that you are in the lands of your enemies, I have not rejected you. I have not spurned you to destroy you, to annul the covenant. And I will remember the covenant, the early covenant, when I took you out of Egypt before the world to be your God. That's the way the chapter ends, the, the admonition ends. And the last verse, So these are the chukim mishpatim tovot. Earlier it mentioned mitzvot, that God has uh, that God has established through Moshe between God and Israel. So one could not find a text which makes Shemitah a central mitzvah more than this text in chapter 26. And of course it connects back to chapter 25. This is the mitzvah that God gave Bahar Sinai. In chapter 25, it began with the verse that God gave the following mitzvah was given at Har Sinai. And we remember Rashi citing the famous question, Ma'inyan Shemitah Eitzel Har Sinai. Why is Shemitah specifically tied into to, the, to, to Mount Sinai. So the Ramban said, because it's emphasizing Shemitah and Sinai, because Shemitah here represents all the mitzvot that were given at Sinai. All the mitzvot are represented in this chapter by Shemitah. And now the question is, what does that mean actually? What does, what does it mean to say that Shemitah represents all the mitzvot in this chapter? So presumably, and the Haftorah actually suggests this, that what Shemitah is about, one might say is, among other things, dependency on God. Because basically, in the seventh year, you can't work the land. And the Torah, in fact, said in chapter 25, that the people are going to say, how can we observe this, 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 this law? We're not going to plant the field, not going to sow the field, and we're not going to harvest the crop. How can we live? So God gave the answer in chapter 25. You're right, it's difficult. But I'll command my blessing in the sixth year, and you have, you have sufficient food for three years. But the Torah understands the difficulty of Shemitah, and what Shemitah seems to represent is the idea of dependency. Dependency on God. Blessed is the one, the person, who depends upon God, trusts in God. It's actually the Haftorah, but this is the parasha of the Chukotai. So it's, very, it's actually very striking. And um, this is the covenant, one might say, because he calls it a covenant. And the Ramban explained that this is not a new covenant. This is a reworking, a reformulation of the covenant of Sinai, which had been suspended when Moshe broke the tablets. Okay, Moshe gets a new set of tablets in the book of Shemot, but this is a continuation. God is continuing to speak, continuing to command, 
and his book of Ayikra is all about sacrifice, observances, festivals, etc., connecting to God in these various ways. At the end of the book, the Torah then says, and this covenant that was established in Sinai and that was suspended when through the golden calf episode is now going to be reformulated. And in this reformulation of the covenant, it takes the form of blessings and curses. And the one myth that the Torah has singled out to represent at this point in time, the, all the mitzvot and all the chukim is in fact Shemitah. Now I wanted to turn our attention before we come to the other piece of this, but I wanted to turn our attention to what it says in the beginning of chapter 26 of Ayikra. The 26 begins the so-called admonition, that is to say, the warning, if you fail to observe, dire things will happen. That's the, the grunt of chapter 26, but it doesn't begin that way. It begins with what will happen if you do observe the mitzvot and the chukim, in chukotai telechu, which is chapter 26, verse number three. And then the Torah describes what will happen. The rains will fall in the, at the appropriate times. The land will produce its, its, uh, its yield, its produce. So it describes how things are just going to work perfectly. The rains will fall. The produce of the land will be enormous, so much. Verse number one, and then you get to verse number four. There will be peace in the land. You'll sleep without fear. God says, I will eliminate uh, vicious animals, vicious beasts from the land. This is a description of peace, kind of ultimate sense of peace. There are no adversaries, no external enemies that will end, that will possess your land. And not only that, there won't even be wild beasts in the land. And the Torah continues, you will be able to defeat the enemies. They won't even come, they won't cross into your land. And a small number of people can defeat a large number. A uh, hundred can defeat 10,000, but they won't even enter your land. And then in verse number nine, I will look, I will turn towards you. If I will multiply you. Again, make you grow. I will establish my covenant. You will eat the old grain, long stored. You have to clear out the new, the old to make room for the new. You have so much. And then in verse number 11. I will establish my mishkan, my sacred space in your midst. I will not spurn you. I will walk in your midst. I will be for you who died. You'll be my people and I'm the God that took you out of Egypt, that freed you from slavery, that broke your yokes, and allow you to stand tall. This is the description of the blessing that will happen if we observe the chukim and the mitzvot and the mishpatim. So here the Ramban actually says something very important about these verses. I wonder what actually motivates him to, I mean, what motivates him is the, is the passage in general. But in particular, I would pick out two things that probably of pushing the Ramban to say what he says. The first of which is the verse that says, there will be no vicious beasts, no wild animals in your land. Not just foreign troops, enemies, but no wild animals. And this kind of peace, as the Torah calls it, Shalom, strikes the Ramban as utopian ideal. You have a land where there are no wild animals. It's very, it reminds us, I think, of the verses in Yeshayahu, 
The lion will lie down with the lamb. The child will play together with the snake. Right? There'll be no fear. It sounds like a end of days vision. That's point number one. And I would add to, to this something else which is very striking, which is the promise in chapter 26. I will place my mishkan in your midst. And not only that, I will walk. I will walk amongst you. That's chapter 26. That's verse number 11 and verse number 12. I will walk amongst you. And it reminded the Ramban, I think, of the Torah's description of the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden after they partake of the forbidden fruit. So it reminded the Ramban this description of the Garden of Eden. There are no adversaries, not even any wild beasts. It's kind of, it's not a world in which we inhabit. And I don't think it's a world, ultimately, that the Torah sees in terms of the Torah's description of the land. It's far, it's a far cry from the description of the land that the, that the people actually will inhabit, says the Torah, in the whole book of Devarim. The book of Devarim speaks about the land that you will inhabit. You're about to cross over into the land. And this description is far removed from, say, the Devarim. In particular, let's leave the wild animals out of it. But in particular, the other statement here is, I will place my mishkan in your midst. I will walk amongst you. But in the book of Devarim, which describes the real land that the people really inhabit, the idea of God walking amongst you and placing the mishkan in your midst is completely and totally absent. It's quite the opposite. The God of the Book of Dvarim is not in your midst. The God of the Book of Dvarim is in heaven. We call upon God to look down from heaven. And yes, God does have a place in the Book of Dvarim. It's called the place that God chooses, or the place that God chooses to place God's name there. And the Torah commands us to make pilgrimages several times a year to that place to appear before God, not to come empty-handed. But that's to visit several times a year. It's not that God is walking in our midst. In fact, we walk to God. The idea of the pilgrimage is central. So the description of the promise, this vision, this ideal vision, in the book of Ayikra, that God has God's Mishkan amongst us and walks amongst us, is very, very far removed from the description of God in the book of Devarim. There God is not walking amongst us at all. God is in the heavens. And there we are the ones that are moving towards God several times a year. So I mention this because it strikes me that since the admonition, the blessing and the curse seem to be related directly to Shemitah, then it strikes me that the Torah is presenting Shemitah as a kind of ideal. And I say, yes, and the, and the promise is that if you do observe the Shemitah, uh, that is to say, the observance of Shemitah is not working the land, or you will allow the land to rest. That's how it's presented. You allow the land to rest. Then, in a certain sense, I will return you to the Garden of Eden, in a sense. There'll be this kind of peace, and there'll be my ongoing and central presence amongst you. It's a very beautiful vision, but it strikes me that it is in contrast, in striking contrast, to the Book of Dvarim's uh, vision of uh, of where God is 
And I would say also the book of Devarim in the admonition in Sefer Devarim, there's a different description of, of the blessing. Just to turn our attention for a moment to the blessing in the book of Devarim, the positive side, what will happen if we do observe the commandments, which is in the book of Devarim, chapter 28. And in, in a moment, I'll pause and take comments or questions. But in chapter 28, Book of Devarium, chapter 28. Let's find that. Right. It starts at the very beginning. If you obey, if you obey God, and you, again, So what will happen if we do obey? So the Torah says, I will set you high above the other nations of the earth. And all the blessings will, these blessings will, will uh, you will be, uh, blessings will come upon you. Let's see the blessings. Verse, beginning in verse number three. Blessed are you in the city. Blessed are you in the field, Baruch Atah Basadeh, Baruch Privit Nechaofi Admatecha, Privahemtecha, Shkara Ofecha, Ashterot Sonecha, Blessed issue of your womb, produce of your soil, offspring of your cattle, the calving of your herd, and the lambing of your flock. Blessed is your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be in your comings, and blessed shall you be in your goings. And then I will, again, God says, I will command a blessing upon your, uh, uh, I will rout your enemies before you. They'll flee from you in many roads. Then it says, I will ordain blessings upon your barns and all your undertaking, right? And then I will establish you as my holy people give you prosperity, and very striking later on, in verse number, uh, verse, number thir- verse number 12, God will give you abounding uh, uh, prosperity, will open for you God's bounty store, the heavens, God's stores in the heavens. God will provide rain, right? And then it says, and you will be in a position to loan to nations. You will not borrow. So it describes, what is the description over here? Uh, you will be above and not below. It strikes me that's quite a different description than the blessing uh, that we saw in our book, in the book of Ayekra chapter 26. You're talking about a nation, and the nation is at work. It's an agricultural description. You have the animals, you have the fields. And the blessing is, I will help you in your your work, in your comings and your goings. I'm going to help you. I'm going to send down blessings from my abode, from the heavens, to bless you. And it describes a nation among nations, not only at war with other nations, it describes a nation among nations from the economic standpoint. You'll be in a position to make loans. You won't have to borrow. Borrowing in the Torah, in the book of Zvarim, you borrow because you're needy. It's not borrowing, and we'll get back to this, this very important point about Shemitah, but here the important point to remember is people that borrow money in the Torah it's not like say people buy, like today you go for a loan to a bank. What does the bank want to know? Do you have enough money to pay them back? If you're really needy, you can't get the loan. That's how it works today. If you're really doing well, you're a successful business and you want to grow your business, you go to the bank and they'll give you a loan. Oh, you're doing very well. You're making a lot of money. Of course, we'll give you a loan because you're not really borrowing the money because you are needy. You're borrowing the money because you want to invest, you want to build, you want to grow. That's how the banks operate. 
And what drives the bank is that there's interest. But you have to remember that in the Torah, the Torah forbids you taking interest from your fellow Jew. So therefore, there's no incentive for somebody to lend you money. There's absolutely no benefit, financial benefit, in lending money. The lending money, of course, to lend to the non-Jew, the Book of Devarim says, you are permitted to take interest. We'll see that because the Book of Devarim talks specifically about lending money and talks about Shemitah in the Book of Devarim as canceling debts. The Book of Devarim never mentions Shemitah of the land. Never. They may assume it, but it never says it. The Devar HaShmita in the Sefer Devarim is the debt is canceled in the seventh year. The Shemitah, at the end of the Shemitah, the rabbis understood that Shemitah means the end of the seventh year. The debt is canceled. So the point is that the Book of Devarim is positioning Shemitah in the context of business or of, of loans. It's not actually business when it comes to the fellow Jew because there's no business incentive there because you make no money from it. But you do make money lending non-Jews. Let me just add, by the way, and I'll stop for a moment to take comments or questions after this. The idea of taking interest, okay, which the Torah calls Meshech and Tarbit, some people think of it as a negative thing. To take interest is, is negative. And the fact of the matter is, leaving, leaving out that the Western economy is based on interest. If you think about taking interest, it, from a logical standpoint, there's nothing wrong with, with taking interest on a loan. I mean, if it's, if it's an inordinate amount of interest, perhaps. But if I rent you a bicycle, if I rent you a house, then many of us are living in rented homes. Someone owns a home, we want to live there, we pay rent. You borrow a bicycle, you pay the store for borrowing the bike and everything else we do. So why should it be any different if I give you money? I didn't, I didn't give you a bicycle for, I gave you money. Why can't I charge? money for the use of my money. I charge money for the use of my house. I charge money for the use of the bicycle. Why not money for the use of the money? So from, from a logical standpoint, it's nothing immoral, unless you assume that charging rent for an apartment is immoral. If you're charging the rent, you're using my thing, I'm entitled to some benefit from that. So the same thing should be true for charging interest. The charging of interest is presumably natural and normal. What the Torah says is that when it comes to the fellow Jew, you are not permitted to charge interest. That's the, that's the unusual rule over here. And that's what's found in the book of Devarim. And we'll get to that. And there the Torah says, people will say, why should I lend money? Or at least why should I lend money two years away from the end of Shemitah? when there's a strong chance I'm going to lose my money. And there's no benefit from lending money outside of doing the right thing, doing a mitzvah. The lending of money comes under the category we call tzedakah. That's what lending money is in the Torah. Because there's no benefit. And what's interesting is that in the promise, in the blessing, in the book of Devarim, which is completely different than the one in Vayikra, it talks about a nation which is functioning as a normal nation. Their, their comings and their goings, they are their economic pursuits, their status amongst other nations. You'll be in a good state. You won't have to borrow money from other nations. You won't be needy. On the contrary, you can lend them money and presumably when you lend to the nations, you can also profit from it because when they lend to you, they also profit from it. It's reciprocal. And there's nothing wrong with that. Inordinate interest is a different story. Gouging is different. Overcharging is different. But my point is, if you look at the two sets of blessings, they're radically different. One is this ideal picture of a world that there is no adversaries, there's peace, there's no wild animals. That's in the book of Bayikra. 
in Sefer Devarim, it seems to be addressing something completely different, a normal, what we would call normal nation at work. And God will assist us. And from where will God assist us? From God's abode, which is the heavens. The Torah says this explicitly in chapter 26 of, of, of Devarim. And that's a very important uh, statement. And we'll come back to this. And then in that statement, which speaks of every three years to make sure that we have distributed all of the tithes, etc., truma, the maslot, etc., and, and given also to the poor. That's the volume chapter 26, verse number 14. And I make a statement that I've done all that you prompt, I, I'm supposed to be doing. I have removed the sacred things from the house. I've given it to the lady and to the stranger and to the widow and orphan. I have followed all of you mitzvot. I have not violated them. I have not forgotten them. And then it continues. I haven't, these objects, I haven't misused them. I haven't made them, made them ritually impure, etc. And then verse number 15, at the end of the speech, after I state that I have performed these mitzvot properly for the stranger, etc., I've shared my produce with the, with the poor, the needy. I've supported the, the priestly class as well, who don't have land. And in verse number 15, Oh God, look down from your dwelling place, which is in heaven, and bless your people Israel. And the land you have given us. God's abode is in heaven. I'm not walking among, God doesn't walk amongst us. But look down from your abode in heaven and bless Israel. And here we come to a very important point after which I'll stop for a moment. Pieto Adama Ashenotatoranu and the Adama, the land that you have given us. And we notice that in the book of Devarim, the land is called Adama. In the book of Ayikva, the land is called Eretz. But in the book of Devarim, the land is called Eretz there as well, but it's also called Adama. And the difference between Adama and Eretz is this. Eretz is a geographical place. Eretz is the land as we know it, but Adama is something else. Adama is the land, but it's the land that the people work. Within the word Adama is the word Adam. Torah says in the Garden of Eden story, before in the second creation account, there was no Adam to work the Adama. And afterwards, after partaking of the forbidden fruit, you're going to eat bread with the sweat of your brow. Right? Until you return to the Adama from which you were taken. You are dust, you return to dust. And when Adam is banished from the Garden of Eden, Adam is banished to work or to serve the Adama from which he was taken. So Adama is land that I work. It's my land. I work very hard, but I am commanded from the land that I work to share with others. We'll come back to this very central point. It's a central difference between the blessings in Vayikra and which at the center of it is Shemitah. And Shemitah is not about sharing with others. It is about sharing with others. But that's not the primary idea of Shemitah. The primary idea of Shemitah is it's not my land, period. It's God's land. It's God's land. It's even presented as the land has to rest. It's almost a person. And the reason I share with others is because it's not really mine. By allowing others to partake of my land in the seventh year, I am demonstrating the fact that it's not my land in the first place. As God says, Ki you are strangers and sojourners with me. 
That's in the context of Shemitah and Yovel. We'll get to Yovel shortly. But in the book of Devarim, it's a different story. It is my land. It's my Adama, and I work it. Says the Torah, okay, it's yours. That's a wonderful thing. And because it's yours, you can then share it with others. And you better share it with others too. Because if you fail to share it with others, you'll soon discover that I'm going to intervene and you won't have a land. And we'll come back to this theme shortly. Let me stop at this point and see if there are any comments or questions about anything that's been said till now, about this core distinction between the book of Vayikra and the book of Devarim. Very important distinction. Are there any comments or questions? Does, does the Torah ever talk about um, when we kept Shemitah and what, what the consequences, what happened when we did? Was the it Torah, ever really Well, there's the blessing. Kept? There is the blessing that if you keep it, Torah says there'll be peace in the land, there'll be, uh, etc. There won't be any wild animals coming through and all of that. Look, what's clear is and the reason I've spent so much time on this is to reinforce the point that we've been making the first two sessions. Shemitah is a mitzvah that the Torah understands is very difficult to keep. It's the only mitzvah I can think of where on two separate occasions the Torah says, don't think you can't do it. It's not impossible, but it is difficult. And this theme that Shemitah is difficult to keep is not just found in the Chumash. I take it from the Chumash, but actually it's found in the, in, the, in the Talmud as well. It's found in the Mishnah. It's found in stories in the Gemara about people that don't keep Shemitah. The Gemara is well aware of the fact that Shemitah is a mitzvah that's difficult to observe, and many do not observe it. That's for sure. It takes that as a given in the Talmud. So what will happen, presumably, are these blessings. You know, they are Ramban season in terms of the Garden of Eden. It's, it's, it's an ideal world, but my, my point that I'm pushing over here is the reason that this is actually ideal is because in the Chumash itself, in my view, that's not the ultimate way the Chumash sees the land. I mean, it's important to keep this in mind. There's a tension between these two books because at the end of the day, the land in which we actually will inhabit in the book of Zvarim is not a land where the idea was God walks amongst us and the Mishkan's in our presence. It's not true. Nor is God's not walking amongst us. God's in heaven. And God's not walking amongst us because we're walking towards God. And we're not walking towards God every day. We're visiting several times a year. You can think of it this way. Think of it in terms of a human being that grows up. When we're very little, Someone's taking care of us, parent, a guardian, somebody. And then when you get older and older, and suddenly you establish your own family, you choose your own career, maybe you move away. And in most cases, it doesn't always work out this way, but in, it's supposed to be that you haven't completely severed ties with your parents. You're still connected to your parents. You may visit them often, but you don't live with them. But you visit them, you respect them, you honor them, etc. But you have your own life to live, and you have maybe your own children, possibly. So the point is, that's the model of the Chumash, in my view. The Chumash is moving from dependency, first, first in Egypt, dependency on Pharaoh. We are Pharaoh's servants. Then we become God's servants. But what does that mean to be God's servants? So in the first stage, it's about completely depending on God sense of dependency. But the Torah moves from dependency towards independence. But being independent doesn't mean forgetting God. The book of Devarim's concern, actually, is that you'll forget God. You, you might believe or forget all the people that helped you. You might believe that you're a self-made human being. And the book of Devarim makes the claim nobody is self-made. Everybody's been assisted by someone else and we have a whole history. And what we, if God hadn't taken us out of Egypt, and there God did it basically single-handedly, we did very little. If God had not done that, we'd, we'd, we'd be slaves. And we wouldn't be in a place where we can do what we, what we did, any success that we had. So we have to recognize that. And I would say, in addition to that, 
apart from recognizing God's place, we also have to recognize every, everybody else, presumably, who helped us get where we are. We remember our past. We remember our ancestors, our teachers, whatever, you know, those that came before us. Uh, very important to keep that in mind, but part of a tradition. So that is the book of Dvarim. So my point here is, and I'm pushing for is, the reason Shemitah is actually can be seen as kind of some kind of ideal is because actually it doesn't reflect the reality of how we live in the book of Devarim. And in fact, the mitzvah that the Torah singled out in Devarim to represent all mitzvot, in my view, is not Shemitah. It's a different mitzvah. And in my view, the mitzvah, the Torah singled out in Devarim, is the mitzvah of Bikurim. The mitzvah of Bikurim, the first fruits you bring to the temple, when we bring those first fruits to the temple, we, have a, we make a recital when we bring those first fruits to the temple. Which of course is the core text of the Seder, not an accident. And it talks there about my ancestors were wandering Arameans and they went through all kinds of suffering. And their suffering was covenantal. And here I am today, a beneficiary of all their hard labor that came before me in God's grace. And I come and I bring my first fruits to the temple. And then it says, and, I, and then the passage continues, as we don't read at the Seder, you should rejoice in all the good that God has given you, you and the lady and the stranger in your midst. And then when you get in the book of Devarim, it's a long answer to your question, but when you get to the book of Devarim, there's the blessing. And then there's the long and horrible admonition, curse, one might say, if you fail to observe the mitzvot. And the Torah says very strikingly in the book of Devarim, a striking passage, that why are we going to be banished from the land? Why are we going to suffer these terrible sufferings? In the book of Ayikra, it was the failure to observe the Shemitah. In the book of Devarim, it gives a different reason. If we turn our attention to chapter 28 of Devarim, verse number uh, 47, even verse 45, all the curses will come upon you. Chapter 28, verse 45. All these terrible, terrible curses will come upon you. Your enemies will chase after you till they destroy you. You have not obeyed God to observe mitzvot chukim, which I, which, which I have commanded you. They shall be unto you as a sign and a proof against you and against your children forever. And now the next verse is very striking. And why are these terrible things happening? And they are terrible. Because you didn't serve God with joy and a goodness of heart when you had so much. Therefore, therefore you'll serve your enemy, the enemy that God will send against you in famine, in thirst, in, in, in uh nakedness and with the absence of everything. And the enemy will place upon you a yoke, your neck, upon your neck a yoke until, until he has wiped you out. So the question is, what is this crime that we've committed of not serving God with joy? Are you gonna tell me that it means you, you, did, you did serve God, you did all the right things, but it wasn't done joyously? And for this, we have these horrible punishments. I don't think so. I think that makes no sense to me on any level. It means something different. You didn't serve God with joy. Takes us back to chapter 26. It means you didn't serve God with a good heart when you had everything. It means very simple. that when you had everything, you didn't share it. The Torah emphasizes to simcha in the book of Devarim means to share. You shall 
serve God with joy, you and the stranger and the orphan and the widow and the lady, etc. It's always that way. The point of it is that you are a beneficiary of my largesse, says God, and those that came before you. And you have to understand, it's not because you're self-made and you did it all yourself. Nobody does it themselves. And therefore, using it only for yourself, seeing yourself as the sole person to benefit, is completely counter to the entire book of Zvarim. It's the misunderstanding of what, of what, benefit is always for. The, the reason, the, the use of your benefits that accrue to you, the cattle, the money, whatever it is, is to be shared. You have to make sure that others have. If you have, you have to make sure others have it as well. The Torah is extreme in this way. The Book of Burma is extreme up to the point that it says the Shemitah in the Book of Devarim actually is, make sure if there are poor people who need a loan, you got to lend them the money. And yes, if you lend in the sixth year, there's a good chance they won't be able to pay you back at the end of the seventh year. You may lose your money. Okay, don't worry about it. Right, you'll be okay, says God. We'll get to those passages. That's Shemitah in the book of Devarim. It's an unusual mitzvah. I can't think of any other mitzvah that we have in which the Torah describes the mitzvah in two radically different ways. The Shemitah of Vayikra is all about the land, working the land, other things as well that we'll get to maybe next week. And we'll pick up with this theme. But the Shemitah in the book of Devarim never mentions the land. The Zed Var HaShemitah, in chapter 15, this is what Shemitah is. What is it? Cancellation of debts, cancellation of loans, and make sure you lend the money. And the Torah says, Make sure you lend the money because the Torah knows that some people will not lend money. They don't want to lose their money. That's where you have this business of the Prusbo. Here was the enactment of the Prusbo, which you turn the debt into, as if the court lends the money and you're allowed to collect the money to circumvent the law. But it's not circumventing the law. It's circumventing the law in the technical sense, but it's not circumventing the spirit of the law. Because the idea is make sure poor people get money, okay? Shemitah is hard to do. And many people were not doing it. That's what Hillel saw. The same way the Torah warns about not keeping Shemitah of the land, the Torah warns about not keeping the Shemitah in the book of Devarim about loans and cancellation of debt. Hillel saw it necessary to make an enactment to ensure that what the Torah wants actually happens. It's not circumventing the Torah. It's always circumventing it from a technical standpoint. It's actually fulfilling the Torah. But that's what's striking. The Book of Devarim talks about a real society as we know it. Society, business, how you interact with other people in your communities, how you interact with the foreign nations. And the Torah is dealing with that reality. And so the Shemitah of the Book of Vayikra doesn't really work out, doesn't really fit with the description of the land in the book of Devarim. So that's the point I'm pushing, that that's why we think of the Shemitah as a kind of ideal, because it doesn't actually fully reflect where we are. On the other hand, and this is an important point, I think, the Torah does want us, in additionally, to think of the land as not being ours. But the primary, uh, and really, it's, paradoxical, because primarily the Torah wants us to think of the land as being ours. Uh, let me just say one other thing about these two conceptions of the land. The land of Shemitah in Book of Vayikra, it's about, it's not mine, and it's God's land, and I'm dependent on God. That's what you have there. And then there's the Book of Devarim, it is mine. It's 100% mine. And that gives me the opportunity because it is mine to share. And just to make this point, just presented something which reflects these two ways of seeing the world, actually. Um, the, there's a, there's a, a, a law, of course, first tractate, the tractate of Brachot. The tractate of Brachot talks about various kinds of blessings. And one kind of blessing 
is a blessing you make before you eat something or before you benefit from something which smells nice. Before you eat or you smell some kind of spices or whatever, there's a blessing. It's called Birkat HaNani. And the Gemara discusses why is there a probably rabbinic enactment to make a blessing before you eat. And the Torah gives a very striking reason. The Torah says, because if you benefit from this world without making a blessing, ma'al. The word ma'al, you've transgressed or trespassed. But the word me'ila is found in the context of taking something sacred and misusing it. So it belongs to the temple. And I use it for myself, ma'al. So the Gemara says, everything is God's. It's God's, it's, it's God's world. Therefore, I'm going to eat a piece of meat. I'm going to eat a, a fruit or a vegetable. I have to make a blessing. Blessed are you, God, who created the fruit of the, fruit, the fruit of the earth. That's the blessing I make. And then there's a hierarchy of blessings. There are two blessings that are the most significant blessings that we make. And the two are the blessing we make before we drink wine and the blessing we make before we eat bread. Those are the two most significant blessings. And what's striking is that these two blessings, Bori Priyakefen and Hamotzi Lechem and Aretz, which are obviously the central blessings of Mirchas Anendin, what's striking is that these two blessings, unlike the blessing I make on an apple or a uh, red pepper or whatever, piece of celery, the blessing, the important, most significant blessings are blessings that I make on on foods that I myself create because blessing on bread is the most significant blessing. But the bread doesn't grow from the ground. You know how difficult it is to make bread? How many steps are involved in making bread? How much human uh, effort is needed to make bread? And the same thing with wine. Wine is like the, the grapes are on the, are on the trees, but not the wine. Wine's a lot of work. And we all know there are different kinds of wines, how much effort goes into creating a fine wine. And that's, that's the main blessing. The main blessing is to understand that this also requires gratitude more than the others. All the work that I put in, yes, I did put in the work. Yes, I did bake the bread and all that, all the work that goes into making bread. But nonetheless, if the wheat doesn't, doesn't come, is in the field, I can't make the bread. Therefore, I become responsible for blessing even those things that I myself have created. And that's what Sefer Devarim is about. Sefer Devarim is about sharing. But the Shemitah of Vayikra is not about sharing. The Shemitah of Vayikra, it is about sharing, of course, but it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a product of the fact it's a function of the fact that the, the earth is the Lord's. He we are. It's, that's the main point I wanted to make. If in, are there any other comments? There's one yes. more point I want to make. Before can I, can I, uh, I just of wanted to, to mention, um, there's a, another um, allusion to this, although it's not as overt, but I think is, is uh, now that I've been learning this with you, it kind of struck me, is it in... Um, Yoshua uh, uh, chapter um, 24, Pasuk 13, um, uh, where Yoshua has gathered all the people um, together at the end of his life to make the breach. And he says, I've gathered you to this land where you didn't work for. Um, and that you didn't have to build and all of a sudden I heard Shemitah um, yeah. here and it's this concept of um, recreating the Brit for which they say uh, another variation of Nasev and Nishma and it's really and the, and the next pasuk is v'ivdu oto b'tamimu be'emet. You know, it's the it's the um, 
it's the Shemitah is a recreation of the coming into the land and having to basically say, I will not serve the other idols. Um, and then they, the, the people say, Khalila, you know, he said, but if you're going to serve those other idols, forget about it, you know. And right, they say, right, no, Nasev and Nishma. So I heard Shemitah there as almost a repetition of, of Yoshua's um, exhortation to them uh, to, to really accept the, the Brit upon reaching the land. Right, I would say that um, that's a very striking, those, that last chapter of Yeshua is very striking. I would say that perhaps what he's, additionally what he's saying is that after the book of Yeshua is about conquering the land, and Yeshua is a, a great general, and all kinds of military continuation of the Gemara, I think what he's saying is, despite our efforts, remember that is always, it's never just you. That's what he's saying, you know, without, the truth of the matter is that We've been assisted all along, and um, and the benefits, as you say, the benefit that we take from the land, we're benefiting from in this case other people's work. The the enemy at taking over their vineyards with God's assistance, and you know this theme I would say that you point to is also found in Sefer Dvarim. I mean the same, we can find similar verses in the Book of Dvarim. In fact, virtually identical verses in Devarim. I'm gonna I can, can find them. I don't want to take the time now, put all the time, but we can find parallel verses. Exactly. I've given you, you you are the beneficiary of all kinds of things that you didn't actually work on. And 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 remember, I'm I'm giving these things to you. So in that sense, there's a Shemitah side to it, to to recognize that. Know that it's God's land, basically, and that God is, we are the beneficiaries of God's goodness, but then God also can make claims upon us, and the claims God makes upon us, I would say, first of all, is Shemitah. And then we have something else that we'll get to next week. I want to cover this, and I want to also cover the idea of cancellation of debts, but what is remarkable about the Shemitah, and what really signals that Shemitah is some kind of ideal mitzvah, is not just the Shemitah, but what is actually astonishing is what Shemitah leads to in the book of Vayikra, which is the Yovel. And the Yovel, if you really think about the Jubilee year, which is a remarkable, I mean, I don't know if historically it was ever actually kept, I wondered about that, but the idea that, that the Yovel, which is that everything we think is ours, you know, the land, slaves, they are all freed in the Jubilee year, which the Torah says, and that's a signal that it's never really yours to begin with. You may think you have a piece of land, you purchased a piece of land, but let me tell you something, you never actually own it because it's going to go back in the 50th year, which could be three years away from now, who knows? It depends when you sell it. And therefore, when you buy land, you're not really buying the land, you're really renting the land. And there are all kinds of implications, and we'll see next week. It's a very, very, if you take this seriously, it's an extremely far-reaching idea. It's very striking that the idea that it's not really mine. And uh, I would say, again, to come back to the core issue is the book of Devarim and the book of Ayikra, I would say the covenant of Shemitah, which Shemitah is at the center. In the book of Ayikra, I believe, at the center is Bikurim. Bikurim means I did work the land. I worked it. It's my land. I worked very hard. And I'm going to give God the first fruits. Even though it's my land, it's the Adama that I worked. I give God the first fruits and I share with others. Because even though I did do the work, I recognize that I could never do it alone. And that's about sharing. And Shemitah is different. Shemitah is it's not yours in the first place. It doesn't belong to you. We are. It's, it's mine. And the question is, how do we hold these two different conceptions at the same time? That's a very interesting question. Maybe we'll discuss that next week. And, it's, um, and it says in Shema, when it's saying, it's the partnership. It's right back to what Hashem says. You'll get all this stuff. And the Tiroshcha and, you know, Behemtecha will eat only if you, you know, don't do Elilim. So it's right there in Vahaya Im Shemoah. Right, that's true. And the fact but is the that... But the word, you have Yovel, you know. Yeah. But there in the Shema, actually, in that second parsha of the Shema, 
there you have basically, if yes, better blessing, if no, no blessing. That's a covenantal formula. That's exactly the formula of both Vayikra and Devarim. That's the covenantal is what you would call Sacharva Onesh, you know, punishment and reward. And that's the that's the covenant. The covenant, this covenant is not a, a light matter. The covenant, you assume all kinds of responsibility and you was, as it says in the Shema, God will get angry actually because there's a personal relationship and God will vent God's anger. So yes, for sure. So how do we hold these two covenants simultaneously is a good question. So for next week, I'd like to discuss the, the Yovel. Shemitah is leading to Yovel. There's a second issue about the produce of Shemitah is actually in the Talmud elite, is called holy. I want to discuss that. Where's the holiness of Shemitah coming from? The Torah never calls Shemitah holy, but it calls, but, but the Talmud assumes it's holy because the Jubilee year is holy. And then I did want to get to next week, hopefully, to look again at the book of Devarim about what's called Shemitah's Ksafim, the cancellation of the debts, which is actually still holy, is, is still, you know, happening, is still practiced today. Uh, so those are the things I want to get to next week and then take any comments or questions that you may have. So we'll stop at this point and uh, looking forward to the last session next week, we'll, more uh, reflections upon Shemitah and, and its place. Um, you look okay, like thank you're you very much. Thing to the three o'clock. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. All right. <laughs> exactly. Well, yes, Kayla. Well, thank you, Rabbi Solb, for teaching, even with the uh, formidable time difference. Um, and to everyone in the class, we will see you uh, next week, uh, uh, 8, 8 p.m. Eastern, uh, 3 a.m. Jerusalem time. And right. for, a good, for a good conclusion. In the meantime, everyone, if you have a have a good night, and if you have any questions that we didn't cover, you can contact Rabbi Silber at dsilber at drisha.org. Right. Thank you very much. Good evening. <laughs>